you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. One thing that I've always tried to do with the Twilight Zone podcast is to come at each episode with a fresh pair of eyes, to try and let go of that received wisdom that tells us which ones are classics and which ones are the clunkers or the turkeys. Now I'll be the first to admit I don't always succeed, I still get carried away with the magic of the show at times and I don't really feel like I pick them apart with a modern critic's eye. I mean, you may disagree with that, but I tend to be of the opinion that if the magic of the episode works, it works, and those little nitpicks, I can easily let them go. So you won't usually hear me saying, nobody would do that in that situation, or, you know, that's not right, unless the overall feel of the thing isn't really carrying me along, then those flaws start to come to the surface. So it's not just seeing whether those classic episodes still hold up. It's also re-evaluating those ones that are considered to be the bad episodes too. I don't mind standing up and saying, you know, this episode may not be generally well thought of, but I like it. And it's with that attitude that I now come to one of those episodes that does get a bit of a bad rap. Good Twilight Zone is timeless, and to tell the truth, a lot of bad Twilight Zone isn't bad because it's aged badly, it's more that the content just isn't up to par. But occasionally there are things that jump out that immediately age an episode. Nothing says age more than bad special effects or creature makeup. Well, this episode in that department does have a bit of a doozy. So let's see whether the episode we'll be discussing tonight can weather that storm when we take a look at Mr. Dingle the Strong. Uniquely American institution known as the Neighborhood Bar. Reading left to right are Mr. Anthony O'Toole, proprietor, who waters his drinks like geraniums, but who stands four square for peace and quiet and for booths for ladies. This is Mr. Joseph J. Callahan, an unregistered bookie, whose entire life is any sporting event with two sides and a set of odds. His idea of a meeting at the summit is any dialogue between a catcher and a pitcher with more than one man on base. And this animated citizen is every anonymous better who ever dropped rent money in a horse race, a prize fight, or a floating crap game, and who took out his frustrations and his insolvency on any vulnerable fellow barstool companion with an arms and fist reach. And this is Mr. Luther Dingle a vacuum cleaner salesman whose volume of business is roughly that of a valet at a hobo convention. He's a consummate failure in almost everything, but is a good listener and has a prominent jaw. First broadcast on the 3rd of March 1961, written by Rod Serling and directed by John Brahm. It's been a while since we've seen a John Brahm episode, 
the last one was a nice place to visit in season one and Mr. Dingle the Strong brings him to the halfway point of his 12 Twilight Zone episodes which go all the way from season one through to season five and he does have some classics under his belt too. Time Enough At Last and one of my favourites Mirror Image are right up there so again it'll be interesting to see how this one stacks up against such good work. So here we are in this uniquely American institution, the Neighbourhood Bar. I'm not quite sure I agree with that, but I'll give Rod Serling a bit of leeway on that one. You could argue that a British pub is the same thing, but maybe what he's getting at is that drinking establishments in different countries often have their own flavour because of where they are. A British pub has a different feel to an American bar. And I do remember saying back in the first episode that I do have a certain love for Americana. And when I lived in the US, I did get a real kick out of going to American bars because they do have a bit of a different feel to them. So we'll let that one go. But in this not particularly busy bar, we have three barflies that Sailing has just introduced us to. And as they sit there, they have a conversation that you get the impression is a variation on the conversation that they probably have every day. But then a new visitor comes to the bar. And when you die, my friend, they're going to have to screw you on the ground. Am I crooked? How about that? Tell them. You got to believe me. Am I crooked? No, go ahead. Am I Tell crooked? Well, I Dingle. Dingle for once. For once, why can't you be neutral? Yeah. Am I crooked? Why don't you tell him? Tell him, man. Wait a minute. Back oh, are you tell are him. Are you serious? Are you serious about this? Hit him. And these two unseen gentlemen are visitors from outer space. They are about to alter the destiny of Luther Dingle by leaving him a legacy, the kind you can't hardly find no more. In just a moment, a sad-faced perennial punching bag who missed even the caboose of life's gravy train will take a short constitutional into that most unpredictable region that we refer to as the Twilight Zone. We'll be speaking about that unusual visitor at great length, I'm sure, but... First, we have a short pan across to Rod Sailing sitting in the bar, having a smoke and a beer, which is a good opening, as I've said, I often like when he blends himself into the location. Now, this bar itself seems to be a bit of a Twilight Zone museum. Martin Grams Jr. in unlocking the door to a television classic, as usual, has done his research, and he reels off all of the Twilight Zone artifacts in this location. And he says... The horse painting hanging in the bar is the same one hanging on the wall above Mickey Rooney's bed in The Last Night of the Jockey. The two spinning lights on the chest of the two-headed alien was the same that flashed above Mr. Chambers' door into Save Man. Then he says some of the framed boxing and sports photographs are the same hanging in the bar in What You Need. And the television camera features the same lens that was used to mount on the wall in Burgess Meredith's bedroom in The Obsolete Man. And there's a couple more there too, but, um, you know, let's not get too much into that because it's quite a long list. So we've got a bit of a... So we've got a bit of a Twilight Zone museum going on here. 
So before we get into the details of this story, let's take a moment to meet our cast so far, because other people come in later down the line who we may or may not mention. So I'll just reel through these now. So we have James Westerfield as O'Toole the barman, probably best known for playing Big Mac in the Marlon Brando movie on the waterfront. And he has that look of a heavy, so it's often the kind of role that he played, or as he does here, bartenders or cops, that kind of thing. Then we have Edward Ryder as Callahan the Bucky, and he's quite typical of our hard-working actors of the day, who worked all the way up to the 80s in things like The Dukes of Hazard, and also turned his hand to direct them, but only for three single episodes of TV shows, it seems one of which was the famous comedy show, Get Smart. Now apart from Dingle, our most famous barfly doesn't actually have a name, he's only known as Better, and he's played by the comedian Don Rickles. Now in the novelization, Sailing calls him Hubert Kransky, but I'll come back to that a bit later on. I think Don Rickles is probably more famous in the US than he is in England. But wherever you're from, you will have seen him or heard him in something. He is an actor and he still works to this day. Most recently as the voice of Mr. Potato Head in the Toy Story movies. He is also a comic and he's quite famous as a put-down comic. He insults people in amusing ways or does zingy one-liners. And he had a few one-liners about the Twilight Zone 2, which Martin Grams Jr. lists in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. And he said, Sailing must do well. I've seen him in a convertible spaceship. The producer of the Twilight Zone liked my work so well, he gave me a summer home on Venus. Sailing is a brilliant writer. I know this because he gave me a card that said, Brilliant Writer in Colour. Okay, so here's our alien, or aliens, the thing that's going to get things moving in this episode. Do you ever see such jerky looking creatures? And one head yet. Typical Earthmen. Not really, though. The one in the middle, the one who just suffered the physical damage, he may be the very one we've been looking for. How do you mean? Silence. I'm receiving his waves. Name is Dingle. Abject coward. Does not even possess what Earth creatures call minimum muscles. Decidedly a subphysical type. I think we have found our subject. You intend to give him the additional strength? We haven't found anyone weaker, have we? I believe he will be an exceptional subject. Give him, oh, around 11 secograms atomic weight. That should make him roughly 300 times stronger than the average human being. So Mr. Dingle gets his strength upgrade from the Martians, and our story begins. Now when I research a Twilight Zone episode, there are two books that I've mentioned over and over again that are my go-to books. The Twilight Zone Companion, of course, by Mark Zickery, and Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr. And there's a bit of a disagreement here about how Mr. Dingle got his name. Mark Zickery says, a year before, in an article about the Twilight Zone, a reporter had mistakenly referred 
to the main character of Mr. Denton on Doomsday as Mr. Dingle. Sailing must have liked the name, for he created Mr. Dingle the Strong. But Martin Grams Jr. says in his book, the name of Dingle was Sailing's initial choice for the main protagonist in Mr. Denton on Doomsday. So a bit of a difference there with our two main Twilight Zone commentators. I don't know which one's true, but uh, but irrespective of where he came from, there's no mistaken who plays him because he is one of those stars of the Twilight Zone who are kind of Twilight Zone royalty. It is, of course, Burgess Meredith, a four-time Twilight Zone player, two episodes of which are in this season. He was also in the Night Gallery and was a fitting person to take on the narrating duties in Rod Serling's absence for Twilight Zone the movie. So I don't think there's much more to say about Burgess Meredith for now, but we'll get into his performance in this episode a little later on. So Dingle has his strength upgrade and we're treated to a series of displays of his strength. He throws a bratty kid's football for miles. He breaks the handle of a taxicab door. He lifts the taxi up. He lifts a statue up in the park and credit where it's due, the strength effects are really good in the episode. Now apparently the effects were done by someone called Virgil Beck and his IMDB page is sadly lacking. It only shows four credits and I can't really find out much more about him. He worked on the shows My Favourite Martian and Combat, starring that tragic figure of the Twilight Zone, Vic Morrow. But it's because of the special effects that this episode ran $1,800 over budget, which is why Buck Houghton described it as the misadventures of Dingle. So Dingle's exploits start to attract attention and the next day at the bar there's a whole host of people vying for Dingle's attention. Mr. Dingle, if what we hear is true, do you realize how much money can be made on a tour with our carnival? Mr. Dingle, this is a con artist. Your future lies in television. You're the walking, talking embodiment of every American male's wish fulfillment. You're John Q. Citizen. You're Babbitt. You're Tom, Dick, and Harry. Now, here's our idea for the series. A simple 15-minute across-the-board address by you with little examples of your physical prowess. It's unnatural for breakfast cereals, tonics, vitamin pills, anything. And you I keep can't... telling you, Dingle, you line up with me, I'll get you a couple of real easy setups. Inside of eight months, I'll have you fighting for the world championship. Okay, no, 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 I've never heard of this. With the people surrounding Mr. Dingle, just uh, 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 get out of the way, please. All please. right. Please, out of the way. Uh, come in here. <laughs> and uh, that light there, and that. <clears throat> Hello there, friends. Jason Abernathy here with your show, TV Probes the Unusual. <laughs> Dingle is offered his own television show. Now, in the past, we've came across the odd episode of The Twilight Zone, that was potentially going to be spun off into its own TV series or was originally meant to be a TV series but was then put into the Twilight Zone. For example, Mr. Beavis was going to potentially be a series where Beavis kind of had a different adventure each week, probably involving a guardian angel or something. 
Now what always strikes me about these potential series that we occasionally come across is they always seem so incredibly one note, reliant on one gimmick, you know, so so incredibly simplistic that you can't imagine them going beyond one or two episodes, which is exactly like what this show that they're proposing Mr. Dingle get involved in would be, where he just performs different feats of strength every episode. So I can't see that TV show lasting too long. Maybe unlike another snappily titled show within this show called TV Probes The Unusual, presented by Jason Abernathy. So this character of Abernathy, the television host, was taken from an unused Rod Sailing script called You Be The Bad Guy, and Martin Grams Jr. documents how it involved a private eye named Dan Shevlin who had to resort to devious means to solve a case, and along the way he meets a man named Abernathy. And in this version, the character was played by James Milholland, who we've already seen in the After Hours, and we'll see him again in the episode, I Dream of Genie. So while Dingle completes his feats of strength, the two-headed alien looks on and starts to regret the decision to give Dingle superhuman strength. Had enough? Most inferior. We give him the strength of 300 men, and he uses it for petty exhibition. Give him 20 or 30 seconds more, then remove the power. Excellent idea. I think we should be off. Three planets on tomorrow's itinerary. One should be particularly interesting. Contains only females. Our two-headed alien is played by Douglas Spencer and Michael Fox. And Spencer has a fairly long list of credits, but a lot of them went uncredited at the time because he was actually working as a stand-in for an actor called Ray Milland. So he would sometimes also take small parts in Milland's movies. A notable credit on his list is The Thing from Another World, which went on to inspire the classic John Carpenter film. Sadly, Mr. Dingle the Strong was Spencer's final credit and was released after his death in October of 1960 from complications arising from diabetes. Now, the other head was played by Michael Fox, and he said, I did a few of those television shows. The one that I'm remembered for was the one where I played half of a two-headed monster, and that was delightful. I got to know Sailing fairly well. He was a charming and most talented man, and one of the few writers who really understood an actor's problems, I thought. Well, he certainly had a few problems on this one, but he was also a very prolific actor who notably also appeared in the 80s Twilight Zone as Tom Carter in a segment, A Message from Charity. Now, in an interesting but completely unrelated sideline for Michael Fox is that in 1970, he took part in an experiment where he played Dr. Fox, and the results of that experiment are known as the Fox Effect. And Wikipedia documents it like this. The original experiment was conducted at the University of Southern California School of Medicine in 1970, in which two speakers gave lectures to a classroom of MDs and PhDs on an irrelevant topic. The topic, 
mathematical game theory as applied to physician education was chosen to eliminate the factor that the students being lectured may know information about the actual subject. Students were divided into two separate classrooms. One classroom would be lectured by an actual scientist and the other by an actor who was given the identity Dr. Myron L. Fox, a graduate of Albert Einstein College of Medicine. In the first half of the study, the actor was instructed to teach his material in a more monotone and inexpressive voice. This lecture was then compared to the control lecture by the scientist. After the lectures, the students were tested on the information that they had learned, and the students who attended the lecture taught by the scientists learned more about the material and performed better on the examination. However, when both Dr. Myron L. Fox and the scientist presented their material in an engaging, expressive and enthusiastic matter, the students rated Dr. Fox just as highly as the genuine professor. This lack of correlation between content coverage and ratings under conditions of high expressiveness became known as the Dr. Fox effect. And it was summarized that the experimenters created a meaningless lecture on mathematical game theory as applied to physician education and coached the actor to deliver it with an excessive use of double talk, non sequiturs and contradictory statements. At the same time, the researchers encouraged the actor to adopt a lively demeanor, convey warmth towards his audience, and intersperse his nonsensical comments with humor. The actor fooled not just one, but three separate audience of professional and graduate students. Despite the emptiness of his lecture, 55 psychiatrists, psychologists, educators, graduate students, and other professionals produced evaluations of Dr. Fox that were overwhelmingly positive. The disturbing feature of the Dr. Fox study, as the experimenters noted, is that Fox's nonverbal behaviors so completely masked a meaningless, jargon-filled, and confused presentation. So, an interesting little sideline about one of our actors. But back to Mr. Dingle. When the aliens remove his strength, everyone leaves and Dingle is left as the same man he used to be, and they're left in that uniquely American bar with the other regulars watching a baseball game. But it just so happens that two more aliens turn up and they decide that they're going to run some tests too by granting Mr. Dingle superhuman intelligence. Ah, what are they kidding? He couldn't hit the length of the bat. Well, you're five to one he gets on. Logan! What are you, out of your mind? Hey, 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 Dingle! What about it? What do you think he'll do? Well, various factors are brought into play here involving the, the, the laws of probability, the dispersion process of calculus, the Naglian laws of chance, and of course the subdivision of Greppel, which is based on the position of bodies in mathematical relationship to other bodies. Now, in this case, Using the uh, two factors represented by the divisions involved, I think that the batter will unquestionably hit a home run. A home run by Johnny Lawson. Holy mackerel, how about that? As they take the Dodgers this evening, 2-1. Right. 
A tremendous mm -hmm. blow over mm -hmm. the left field fence. A no, of course me. It is apparent in a math mathematical plan that the entire quantum theory of space and time relativity must have necessarily equated with the parallelian law of definitive numerical dialectic algebraic and must be further annotated. So here's where it ends with Mr. Dingle now super intelligent. And the question we had at the beginning of the episode was, does this episode deserve its reputation as a bit of a turkey? I do have a few thoughts on that. First of all, I think if you show someone the image of the two-headed Martian, it immediately evokes camp and ridiculousness of the kind that is easy to poke fun at. Good Twilight Zone doesn't age, but sometimes bad Twilight Zone really does. And I am quite torn because this is an episode that isn't really taking itself seriously. It's a comedic episode. So it stands to reason that maybe they weren't really taking this silly looking alien seriously either. They're not exactly going for the thing here. And to be fair, the actual blending of the prosthetics on the actors is done just fine. It's just the overall look that is ridiculous. So it's easy to write the whole thing off as ridiculous. If you haven't seen this one for a while and can't remember the fine detail, you'll most likely think back on it as the one with the silly two-headed alien and the two kids. That's just the kind of impression that it leaves in your mind. So if we put that aside, Sailing is clearly going for laughs with this one, but is it funny? Well, as is often the case with Comedy Twilight Zone, I don't really think it is, but at the same time, I don't think it's as offensively unfunny as some of the real failed comedy episodes either. At best, it's mildly amusing occasionally. Very occasionally. But what does it all mean? What's the episode about? We have this mild-mannered nobody, Mr. Dingle, who is just a punching bag for the world, who routinely gets assaulted in his neighborhood bar. He is a character who is ripe for a bit of a helping hand from the Twilight Zone. The best I can surmise that this episode about is that when he does get his boost, he succumbs to vanity and revenge and is punished for it. But I'm not really sure what the alternative was. Using his gift for the benefit of mankind by lifting things up for them. I checked out Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone by Douglas Brody because that book is very much about the meaning behind the episodes. But even he just comes to the conclusion that it's Rod Sailing doing black comedy. So I don't really think the episode means anything, which is fine, it doesn't have to. You know, entertainment for entertainment's sake is okay as long as it's entertaining. So it seems that's what this one comes down to, whether you're entertained by it. I have to be honest, I sat down to watch this one with an open mind, but with a nagging memory of a ridiculous two-headed alien that was Hard to shift. But what I got was a mildly entertaining 20 or so minutes that wasn't entirely bereft of charm. And a big part of that charm was Burgess Meredith. Every screen actor has been in a bad movie or TV show, 
but only some are never really bad no matter what they do even if the material is terrible and Burgess Meredith is one of those actors I always enjoy watching him and I think he raises this episode with his presence so I leave Mr Dingle enjoying it more than I thought I would but I can't go so far as to say I think it's a good episode so whatever happened to Mr Dingle and the guys in that uniquely American bar well Rod Sailing's book from the Twilight Zone gives us a little glimpse into their future and it describes Mr Dingle getting his intelligence upgrade and it says as he leaves the bar exactly what Mr Dingle was talking about as he walked was an academic point since there were no knowledgeable onlookers or bystanders to overhear his remarks actually in the first three blocks Mr Dingle had solved 12 of the most complex mathematical problems known to science invented a perpetual motion machine supplied the equation for a principle to govern gasoline engines that could run for a year and a half on a cupful of gas along with several minor chemical analysis that would in the long run destroy smog take nicotine safely out of tobacco and provide an electric light that could burn for 105 years at the cost of 13 cents 20 minutes later Mr Dingle was swallowed up by the evening traffic and no one in those environs saw him again Mr O'Toole's drinking establishment is quiet these days it's only on the rarest of occasions that he is forced to brandish either the World War I revolver or the broken bottle Mr Callahan still occupies his favourite stool but his bookmaking is a desultory sideline and his principal customer Mr Hubert Kransky is a blunted and subdued imitation of his former glorious raucous quick to come out swinging self what few bets he makes with Mr Callahan are colourless and without excitement with the winning or losing of little consequence to either a sort of dull ritual performed by rote on the one occasion when Mr Kransky took issue with a customer's opinion of the Los Angeles Rams and stalked across the room with at least a semblance of his former grandeur he had his jaw summarily fractured his deceitful opponent turned out to be a former middleweight champion of the United States Navy the whole ugly affair accomplished only a further entrenchment of the conservatism of Mr Kransky and he would spend long hours wistfully staring at the booth where Luther Dingle used to sit while he himself heaved deep sighs and thought lovingly of bygone days and bygone little men with prominent jaws little did he or his two companions realize that Mr Luther Dingle had a great appeal to extraterrestrial note takers and that from then on it was altogether possible that the ex vacuum cleaner salesman would scale Mount Everest take off in a spaceship prove himself the world's greatest most effective lover or take a position on the faculty at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology it all could very well happen and it probably did exit Mr. Luther Dingle formerly vacuum cleaner salesman strongest man on earth and now mental giant these latter powers will very likely be eliminated before too long 
But Mr. Dingle has an appeal to extraterrestrial note-takers as well as to frustrated and insolvent bet-losers. Offhand, I'd say that he was in for a great deal of extremely odd periods, simply because there are so many inhabited planets who send down observers, and also because, of course, Mr. Dingle lives his life with one foot in his mouth and the other in the twilight zone. Let's have a listen to some feedback from listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast in Submitted for Your Approval. I've had a message from Spencer Seams. He said, Tom, I started listening recently and I love your take on the Twilight Zone. We differ a lot on our opinions on some episodes. Time enough at last, I personally don't like it all. I don't buy the hostile world that hates Henry Bemis for some unknown reason. The scene where his wife rips a book apart that he was reading is too stupid to take seriously. That aside, Mr. Dingle the Strong is one of my favourites. I've seen every episode and that is one of my go-tos for a rewatch. I don't know fully why I love Mr. Dingle so much, but it's legitimately fantastic to me. It could be that I like goofier and funner sensibilities more than dark and grim. I even like Cavender is Coming with Carol Burnett. That one is considered awful, but I love it. However, my favourite episode is a dark one. Number 12 looks just like you. I'm rambling at this point. Keep up the very detailed and great work, Tom, from Spencer. Spencer, thanks very much, and I think, you know, that highlights something that the Twilight Zone speaks to us all in different ways, you know, we've all got our favourites, and, you know, coming to this one with uh, an open mind and trying to reevaluate it, well, you know, this is what it's all about, isn't it, and and having those differences of opinion, you know, without being precious about it or offended by anyone's differences that's what it's all about and that's what uh, Spencer's brought to the table with that email so thank you Spencer I appreciate it an old friend of the show Andrew Schneider sent a message and he said hi Tom I'm in Dallas covering the Texas Republic Convention for Houston Public Media my home radio station and for National Public Radio well you know what I'm kind I've always thought this i don't know whether i've said that andrew but i am kind of flattered that a professional broadcaster listens to my little podcast so thank you and he goes on to say during a break i took a few hours to visit the site of president john f kennedy's assassination the sixth floor of the former texas school book depository from which lee harvey oswald shot kennedy has been turned into a museum one of the first displays in the museum is devoted to American culture in 1960, the year JFK was elected. It features film posters of Psycho and Breakfast at Tiffany's, a record of Chubby Checker, and stills of two TV shows, The Dick Van Dyke Show and The Twilight Zone. Representing The Twilight Zone are stills from three episodes, one for The Angels, Nick of Time and The Game of Pool. As you've already discussed on the podcast, Rod Serling and others before have played with the idea of someone trying to prevent the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I couldn't help thinking as I walked through this museum that Serling could have told a fascinating story about the Kennedy assassination as well. 
The event is so wrapped up in conspiracy theories and what might have been that it feels like an instance of a real-world meeting, the Twilight Zone. All the best, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Um, you know, this sort of highlights something pretty cool. If, if you go to a Twilight Zone exhibit or anything related to the Twilight Zone, then, you know, email us and let us know about it. I used to live in Texas. I lived in Fort Worth for a while, and I went to Dallas and... Uh, took a little look at the book depository i didn't actually go in though now i wish i had i don't know whether it was the same at, at that time but thank you andrew now our old friend stephen mason has sent us an email and it's entitled is mr dingle in the turkey zone and he says tom first i want to say you've been doing better than ever i like the way the podcasts are a mix of episodes reviews interviews and story readings well thank you you know the more I've been going on doing it, the more I've I've realised that it's not a race to the end. It's kind of exploring all these different avenues of the Twilight Zone. And I did three episodes on the comic recently, was which was probably quite a lot. But you know, it's uh, it's the summertime. It's a bit of a busier time for me. So those were quite easy episodes to just get out and keep the momentum going. So I would rather do something like that than nothing at all to just try and keep that those wheels turning um, but unfortunately there are going to be weeks when I don't manage it as well as we've uh, seen over the past few weeks but thank you Stephen I appreciate that and he goes on to say the next episode is Mr Dingle the Strong like you said it has a reputation of being one of the turkeys it's silly but I think it's better than most people think I watched it back in the 1960s back then anyone could see it was going to be a comedy because it takes place in a bar with Burgess Meredith and Don Rickles. Meredith was instantly recognisable as the bumbling everyman and Rickles the loudmouth bully, which was their normal shtick. The Martians and the Venusians were comical too. This episode is slapstick with a teasy twist. There's nothing scary in it, nor is there a moral, though there is a hint that Earthlings aren't exactly the brightest stars in the solar system. The Martians were disgusted with the results of their experiment, and you expect the same from the Venusians. Humans missed their opportunity for contact with aliens because we were too clueless, even when given enhanced strength or intelligence. That reminds me of something that astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson recently said when asked if he thought we'd been visited by aliens. And he says, I wonder if in fact we have been observed by aliens and upon close examination of human conduct and human behaviour, they've concluded that there is no sign of intelligent life on Earth. Take care, Tom, and I'm glad I can look forward to your podcast again. Well, thank you, Stephen. I'm glad it's uh, a bit more regular these days as well. But that's it. You know, I kind of agree. I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I really like Mr. Dingle the Strong, but I think there is a bit of a charm there. It is sort of mildly enjoyable. It, you know, you can put the silliness to one side or embrace the silliness and enjoy it, you know, whatever floats your boat. But it's, um, you know, I don't think it's as bad as, as maybe popular opinion would say. So good one, Stephen. Thank you. Now, I've had an email from Robert Hackett, and it's quite a, a personal sort of anecdote about the Twilight Zone. So I, I just double checked that he was okay with me sharing it and he said he was and he says 
Uh, Dear Tom, I discovered your podcast a few years ago and it quickly became one of my favourites. While I'm not a diehard Twilight Zone fan, I do enjoy the show, although being 47, I discovered it well after its initial run. I like your perspective on the Twilight Zone and the amount of research you put in really shows. The background information and reflections add a sometimes wistful air of nostalgia that is very touching. I would like to add a comment about the episode Dust. While this episode is never at the top of best of lists, I find it a touching, effective episode. The struggle that we often face to forgive those who have wronged us impacts everyone, I believe. I had an unhappy childhood and often felt that justified being an angry jerk to people around me. I eventually realised that making everyone else angry at me only made me more angry. I had to look in a mirror, literally sometimes, before I realised I could not blame everyone else for my problems. I eventually apologised to many people for my behaviour, but there is still within me a lack of forgiveness to myself. About 10 years ago someone wronged me greatly, it had to be settled by police intervention, and I carried on with my life. A few years ago I saw this person in a local shopping plaza, he was in a wheelchair and part of one leg had been amputated. We made brief eye contact, quick enough to recognise the other and appropriately look away. I did not go over and engage him like a TV show or movie would have me do, but within my mind my first thought was pity for a man who had wronged me badly. I was genuinely sorry for a person I thought I despised. I think about that moment a lot when the subject of forgiveness comes up. While I did not directly forgive him, I bear him no malice of thought. Is that enough? Dust is a story of forgiveness. It can be a little over sentimental, but seeing a generally decent man being put to death for a crime he did not intend while people plead for his life does have a tendency to tug at one's heart. I live in a country of 50 states, the majority of which still have the death penalty. A quick overview and anyone would be horrified by how many people have been freed from death row because they were later proven innocent. There are a lot of people in America who have a lot of power who think it's a good thing to execute convicted murderers. They are remarkably silent when innocent men are freed or also possibly executed. I don't want to ramble on too much, so thanks for a well done podcast and I look forward to the newest release and that one was from Rob. Thanks Rob. Um, Like I say, you know, very personal recollections. It's interesting to hear how an episode like Dust has, you know, touched someone in a very personal way. So that's great. Now, I've had an email from Greg Tyson and it's going back to one from the archives, one of my favourites actually, Mirror Image. And he says, I think Millicent and Paul are the only characters in Mirror Image from our world. Everyone else, the ticket agent, the cleaning lady, the police, even the old sleeping couple Millicent interrupts early on, have already been replaced. It would explain the dismissiveness and in some cases utter hostility they show Millicent. They and Millicent's double are part of a grand scheme, what their endgame entails, Mr. Sailing tantalisingly leaves up to us. Perhaps Millicent's explanation is right, that our world and another have converged, and the only way an occupant from this other world can live is to move us out. I'm sure all the bus station occupants mirrored Millicent's increasingly harried state when their time came. 
and like Millicent, their ravings about parallel worlds or whatever theories they had of what was happening to them sent them on a way ride to the funny farm. Can you imagine Millicent's surprise when she discovers the occupant of the padded cell next to her own is the ticket agent and that he's an infinitely more sympathetic character than the brusque SOB she ran afoul of initially? Anyway, that's my two cents. Thanks for your wonderful podcast, Greg. You know what that reminds me of, Greg, is that sometimes there are these novelizations of Twilight Zone stories and they pad the story out a bit more and you get a bit more detail here and there. And your theory kind of reminds me of that, especially the bit with the padded cell and stuff like that. So, you know, good call, good observations. Um, Really well done on that one. So thank you, Greg. And if anyone else wants to comment on a past episode of The Twilight Zone that I've covered or our next episode of The Twilight Zone, which is static, then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com. Now, before I go, I just want to say thank you for the latest crop of iTunes reviews from the stateside we've had. Uh, I can't remember whether I mentioned Musketeer Dad last time, but I'll mention him again. Thanks for your review. Uh, Andrew HPM, he's done a great review on there as well. Pilot Bob C, Ransack One, Northin VT, and Ted underscore 42 have all left great five-star reviews. You know, it, uh, it really helps get the Twilight Zone podcast out there. And on a personal note, I always love reading them and appreciate getting them. And that you've taken the time to do that really means a lot. So thanks very much. And uh, I hope everyone will join me for the next episode, Static. But in the meantime, I'm going to put out a, a sort of mini podcast about an idea that I've had. Now, we're coming up to the end of season two. And we're also kind of approaching the 100th episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. We're probably about 19 episodes away from that. And in my world, 19 episodes can take a long time, but hopefully not anymore. I've had a little idea, maybe a a little sort of competition of sorts, which means that some listeners may be able to contribute to the Twilight Zone podcast on those special sort of episodes that I'll mark with uh, for the 100th episode so I'll do a little mini podcast after this one maybe and explain that one in the next few days so listen out for it and hopefully you might be able to get yourself on the Twilight Zone podcast in some way so thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time